Well, welcome everybody. It's good to see you guys this weekend. Welcome to Grace and everybody watching online and our live sites in the Montrose building. Uh, thanks for being here as well. A few folks looking for seats still, so maybe be sensitive to them and let them sit down. Uh, just a reminder that we have Saturday night services. Saturday night, last night, I kicked my music stand and it flew all the way off the stage. And you missed that because you're here this morning, but it will be released on video soon, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, just a reminder to, that uh, Saturday night in the Montrose building, great spots and uh, same services, and we'll love to see you there as well. A couple things before we uh, jump into our teaching this weekend. Uh, first thing was mentioned earlier, that financial class. Uh, take note of that. Um, if you are a, a person who's trying to get your finances organized, or uh, maybe a younger person kind of entering the adulting world and trying to put down some like financial systems, that's what this class is for. It's not a fundraising class. It's really a biblical view of what God says about financing and then like debt and budgets and things like that. Heidi and I, uh, years ago, took a class like that, and uh, it really uh, served as kind of a foundation of how we approach our finances, and it's been incredibly helpful over the years. And so that's why we do that. Uh, some of us have a knack for that, and some of us don't. And so uh, open the app, click on that, maybe take advantage of it, and, uh, and, and that's why it's there, so we'd love for you to do it. Uh, the second thing I want to talk about uh, before we start our teaching is there's a couple families uh, in our church that I want us to stop and pray for. Um, you know, Grace is a, is a kind of a big ecosystem, so we have campuses all over the place, and there's a couple families from our Medina East campus are going through a lot right now. So there's, uh, there's two people and several families I really want you to pray for. Maybe you can write this down. Uh, there's a little girl named Ella, and uh, she was diagnosed with a, a brain tumor, an inoperable brain tumor. And so we need to ask the Lord to do something miraculous there in, in her life. And so praying for Ella and her family. And uh, write that down so you can, you can pray for her even as we, uh, we go our ways today. And then there's a, another situation that's a painful one. Uh, a young man named Brad uh, went to be with the Lord last night. And so his wife of 18 months, Kelsey is her name. If you'd pray for Kelsey. And, uh, and Brad's family, his parents would be the Thomas family. Her family would be the young family. And they're just hurting, right? Just hurting. And uh, so God says that we're a church. A church is a family, a church is a body, and so we experience pain together, and we, we pray for and bear each other's burdens, and so I just think uh, it's appropriate for us to, to do that. So I'm going to pray now, and if you would remember uh, to pray, we just need to surround these families with love, okay? So Jesus, uh, you tell us to do this, you tell us to bring our cares and our anxieties before you, and to cast them on you, and that's what we're doing and so uh, we're asking on behalf of these parts of our family that you be with little Ella and her family, bless, help, heal, if it's your will. And for Brad's family, his precious wife and her parents and his parents and siblings and grandparents. And God, if you would just help and heal and comfort. You tell us that you are our ever-present help in time of trouble and they're in trouble, so we're in trouble. And so we're asking for your help, if you would comfort and bless and heal. 
God, I know that there's others, hundreds of others, and we have pain and we have loss and we have things that we're anxious about. And thank you that you love us and you care about that. Uh, you are always with us and uh, you journey through life with us. So we don't, we don't often understand the paths that you ask us to walk, but we can trust your heart and your power and your love as we are walking them. And so help all of us in that way and these families in a special way. So thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. So we're in a series right now. We started last week called Asking for a Friend. And what we're doing is we're running into kind of some of these tough parts of the Bible, uh, parts of the Bible that are confusing, parts of the Bible that seem like they're uh, contradictory to the heart and the mind of Jesus. They feel sometimes out of the blue a little bit. And so they become discussions in life groups and in the lobby and even with your friends who are thinking about or struggling with faith. And so uh, we just kind of decided to tackle them and to try to get our, our head around the head and the heart of Jesus. Uh, these passages, the ones that we're dealing with here for the next couple of weeks, tend to center around God's holiness and his justice, his holiness and his justice, and trying to put that into a context where it allows us to understand the full character and the full mind of God. So I put down a definition for these two things just to work off of. It's not a complete definition, so don't email me or tweet about it. I know already, but it's something for us to talk about. So when we talked about the holiness of God, a partial definition of holiness of God. The holiness of God is tied to his power and goodness and perfection. So usually, not all the time, but usually in the scripture, when you kind of run head first in the holiness of God, you're running into his power. Uh, God will exercise his power and something supernatural will happen or someone will lose their life really rapidly or God will overcome a, an army that's an enemy of Israel, something like that. And so his power. It's also tied to his goodness. So God is holy in his goodness. And, and why that's important is this, is that there is no ulterior motive to God's goodness. So when he, when he offers us love or salvation or strength, it's not because he's trying to get our money or control us or something like that. There's a purity to his goodness. And then God's perfection. And this, this is really important when it comes to our salvation. So we would say, uh, I'm a good person. Uh, why do I need to be saved from? And that's a really fair question. And God might look and say, what, well, I'm a holy God. So my standard isn't goodness, my standard is perfection. You have to be a perfect person. And none of us would, would make that claim, right? So that's the holiness of God and where we kind of bump into it. And we have to encounter that and interact with that. That's a part, big part of who God is. He's a holy God. Then the justice of God, kind of define it this way. It's God's definition of good and evil. God defining how life with him and each other should be. So the, the standard of justice for God is the standard that God makes it. So he is the definer of what is good and the definer of evil and, and what, of, what is evil. And like our opinion about that's irrelevant. Whether we think he's fair or not, he is. Whether we think he's overreacting to that or not, he's not, 
right? He is the definer of that. And then he brings that into our relationships with him. He would say, you interact with me this way and you don't interact with me this way. You, you, don't, you don't make that up. I define that. And then even each other. This is what it means to love each other. It does not mean this kind of despite whatever culture saying or we think or, or those kind of things. And so the holiness and the justice of God, and these are a big part of God's character. And where this becomes important is when we're interacting with Jesus, there, there's parts of Jesus we like a bunch, right? Me too. Like I love like the mercy of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus. I'm all in on that. And then what happens is I run into the scripture and I see his justice, his holiness, his righteousness, even his wrath, his righteous wrath. And we're like, whoa, Jesus go off the rails as he's schizophrenic. Like this doesn't seem like it computes back and forth, but it's all a part of who he is. Uh, there's a great thing on the internet that you all should Google and be a part of called the Bible Project. Bible Project is fantastic. And in the Bible Project, they give this illustration. I thought it was great. When you think about God, think about the sun. The sun is what it is. So the sun warms us, helps us, heals us, grows our crops, and it will burn us, scorch us, and if we get too close to it, we'll spontaneously combust. And the sun is not being hypocritical. It's not being schizophrenic. It's the nature of what the sun is. The parts of the sun that we long to engage are, are equal to the parts of the sun that we would be fearful of or hesitant to engage. It is being itself. And whether I think the sun is fair or not is irrelevant. Whether I think the sun should be that way or not is irrelevant. Me yelling at the sun for giving me a sunburn from walking from my house to the mailbox doesn't do a thing, right? Oh, you think I'm making that up, don't you? Right? The, the sun is what it is, and I'm responding to what it is, not defining what it is. This is Christ. Christ is who he is. He's not schizophrenic. He's not this and then that. They don't contradict it's a part of his whole nature. So when I worship Christ, follow Christ, yield to Christ, I'm doing that to the whole nature of who he is. And sometimes in scripture we see the compassion and the grace and the mercy of Christ is kind of in the, the forefront. And then other times we see his holiness, his justice, and that's kind of in the forefront as well. So we're looking at these parts of scripture where that's in the forefront right now and trying to understand it so that we can get our head and our hearts around the head and the heart of Christ. So let me show you this. We'll go to Luke chapter 19 this weekend is where we're going to hang out. Luke chapter 19. And I'm going to show you this parable that Jesus told. So a parable is a story that Jesus would make up in order to teach spiritual truths about himself. So it's an illustrated story because he wants us to understand something about him that might be hard for us to understand. So Luke chapter 19, it's page 852, and the Bible's in the chairs, <clears throat> and all this is on the app also, if you wanna use this, verse 11, it starts, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable 
because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, and here's the parable, he said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, the master replied, because you have been trustworthy in very small matters. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. The master replied, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir... Here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you do not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that everyone who has more will be given more. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. <laughs> awesome story, right? Right? So what is that? Like, like Jesus makes up a story. It's not about it like a little kid and a bunny. He's like, here's one for you. So what does he want us to understand, right? Because he's doing this on purpose. So he wants the hearers here in the Bible to understand it. And then through the scripture, he wants us to understand something about himself. What would that be? Okay, so let's dig into it a little bit, but we got to get a context first. So if you go back to verse 11, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. He told them this parable at this time because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So Let's talk about the culture for a minute, and in particular, the politics of the day, okay? So these folks who heard Jesus say this originally would have had an understanding of politics and even some geopolitical stuff the way that you and I would, right? We would understand kind of what's going on in our own political system, and then we would understand kind of what's going on with China and Russia and stuff like that. We would have an awareness, and they had an awareness as well. So what was happening to them right then was this. This is Jesus near Jerusalem. And at this time in, in history, Jerusalem and the area was ruled by Rome, okay? And they had a governor that was appointed by Rome to rule over Jerusalem. The governor at this time was a guy named Herod. He was a wicked, evil violent, kind of disgusting human being. That's who Herod was. And the people hated him. He, in order to have authority in Jerusalem, 
had to leave and go to Rome and have that authority granted to him by an outside power. And he had just done that. The people hated Herod so much that they sent a delegation to Rome, about 50 people to Rome, to petition the Roman leaders not to make Herod their king again. But the powers in Rome did anyways. So Herod came back as king, and in those days, when you had political enemies and you were the king, he called for his political enemies to be brought in front of him, and he had them all executed. So that had just happened. And kind of in the, in the context of that political reality that all the people knew about, Jesus enters, he's going to Jerusalem, they want him to be king at once so that he can overthrow Herod and get this tyranny off of them, Jesus wants them to understand what the kingdom of God is actually like, so he creates a parable to explain that to them, so that they can understand who he is and what he is going to do, okay? And so in this parable... He begins by leaning into some of these political analogies, and he says this. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas, put this money to work until I come back. So in this parable, there's three main people or groups of people. There's the king who went away to a distant country and came back. There's his servants, who he's going to talk to right now, and then there's his enemies, which he's going to talk to throughout the conversation. So you got a king slash master, servants, and enemies. The king goes to get his power and come back, and he calls his servants together, gives them 10 minas. Minas was a unit of money. It would have been about three months-ish wages for them. And he says this, put this money to work, he said, until I come back back, okay? I'm leaving you with a task. This is what I want you to do, and you make this work for me until I return and see what you have done with it. In the parable now, Jesus is using this to illustrate truth. The mina in the parable for us will be our lives, our lives, or Jesus would look at his servants, Christ followers. He would say, I'm gone right now. There's a time between when I was born of a virgin, walked on the earth, never sinned, laid my life down, took it up again. I have ascended back to heaven. The Bible says that right now, where is Jesus? He's seated at the right hand of his Father in heaven. And then the Bible is very clear that he will come back to earth one day physically. He will return. In the meantime, he looks at us, his servants, if you're a Christ follower, and he says, I've given you something. Your mina is your life. And you are to put your life to work while I am gone. I have taken something that is mine, your life, because you are not your own. You were bought with a price, the Bible says. I purchased your life with my life. I have left you to invest your life, and you are to put it to work until I 
return because I'm going to return. Then he turns the conversation to his enemies. So we have the king, the servant, the enemies. He says this, but to his subject, but his subjects hated him, sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. So Jesus says, there's some of you who are my servants. You have a life to invest. There's some of you who hate me and never wanted me to be king, but I went away, was made king by my heavenly father, and I am returning. And I am returning as your king, right? Now, a parable is a story in which God wants us to understand something about himself, right? So that we can know how to interact with him. Jesus identifies this spiritual tension in all of us when he says, here's something that every human being needs to know. And he's not wagging his finger, he's not pounding the pulpit, he's not screaming at people, he's just kind of laying the facts out. Here's something that every human being needs to know. I am away, and I am being made king, and I will return as your king regardless of what you think about that. I do not derive my authority from you. I derive my authority from my Father. And when I come back, your opinion of me is irrelevant. I am who I am. Now, that right there makes all of us tense up, right? Because human beings, by our nature, are stubbornly independent people. We do not like to be ruled. We do not like people to tell us what to do. We want to live our own truth. We want to discover our own path. Uh, we, We want to decide for ourselves. And I would say... If I was giving this conversation in like Africa, I would apply it differently. But since we're in North America, I would say as North Americans, we tend to double down on this independence because we choose our leaders. And we have always had a choice in who they are. And if we don't like the leader that the other team chose, we'll work to get that leader out of office and get our leader in, see? But the idea that someone is just appointed over us and they have power and their definition of right and their definition of wrong and their definition of how to interact with them is dictated to us makes us tense up. We hate that. Now that mindset flips into our relationship with God. Because what we want to do, and this is just natural, it's a temptation, what we want to do is to create our own God. I want to I look at God and I want him to be who I want him to be. I really love the compassion and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God, and that's my God. I elect him to be that in my life. And if he claims or says or tries to be something other than that, then I will 
unelect him out of that aspect of my life. And part of what Jesus is saying here is, I am who I am. The son is the son regardless of what you think about it. And I am who I am. My authority is not derived from you. You don't grant me authority in your life. The Father God gave me authority in your life. And I will exercise that authority. And you will run into my holiness and my justice whether you want to do that or not. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 24. He says, therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. The Bible is very clear that Jesus will physically return to the earth one day. And we don't know the hour and we don't know the time and we don't know the day. And the point of Jesus telling us that is not for us to figure it out. If you're trying to figure out when God is coming back, you're wasting your time. Lots of people have tried to do that. Nobody's ever been right. And if you happen to be right, you got lucky. And if I was God, I'd change it just to make you wrong, right? So it's a total, total waste of time. So this has nothing to do with being a prepper or being a zombie. That has everything to do with other things, but not with Jesus returning, right? So you want to be a prepper? Let me know. I think that's just fun. But but this is not for the return of God. But the Bible is clear that Jesus is away in a far off country and he will return to earth. And the Bible says that when he does that, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord because the Son is the Son no matter what we think about the Son being the Son. He is our king. He goes on and he says this, when the Son of Man, that's Jesus, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a sheep separates the sheep from the goats. The Bible says that Jesus will return and he will return as a holy and just king. And all the nations, all the people will gather before him and he will judge them. It's called the great white throne judgment. And so every human being that's ever lived and who's alive now will stand before Jesus whenever he returns, we don't know when, will stand before him and he will look and in essence say, are you my servant or are you my enemy? And I am a just God, I decide that. Well, I wanted you to be like this, and so I thought of you this way. That's not how this works. Well, I love this part of you, but this part seems so unfair and, and so closed-minded. That's not how this works. I am your king. You sent a delegation. You were overruled. And I am reigning as king, and I will sit on that throne with that authority, and I will judge perfectly between the sheep and the goats. So these are these two people. The goats are the enemies, the sheep are the servants, right? And Jesus is alluding to all of this through this parable. So as he goes on in the parable, the first thing he does is he starts talking about 
the sheep are the servants, and how he as king is going to interact with his servants. The Bible says this, and he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. He sent for his servants who he had entrusted with ten mina and said, guys, what did you do with it? First servant comes in and says, hey, master, I got a ten to one return on this. And the master looks and says, good job, good servant. You've done well. You rule two set, ten cities. Here's your reward for that. Second guy comes in, says, I did five times. Good job. Here's your reward. You rule these five cities. Third guy comes in, and he says something very interesting. He said, the other servant came and said, sir, here is your mina. I've kept it and laid it away in a piece of cloth. Here's your money back. I kept it, I shoved it in my pocket, wrapped up in a piece of cloth. Now, in the ancient world, for a servant to say that to a master is egregious. Because in the ancient world, there is no financial backup system, right? You don't call American Express and challenge a, a charge on your card. There's no FDIC insurance. If your money is gone, it's gone. And so for you to walk around for however long the master was gone with three months' wages in your pocket would be at best irresponsible and probably more likely disrespectful to the king who rules over you. What this servant was doing was he was saying to his master, hey master, listen, what I've done with the life that you've given me is I've been careless with it. Oh yeah, I gave you, I purchased a life for you. You're not your own, you're bought at a price and I entrusted you with it. What did you do with it, my servant? First one, I invested in eternal things and got a 10 times eternal reward. Second one, five times eternal kickback. Third one, oh, I kind of lived it. And I was careless with it. That was crazy. You should have been with me in high school and college. Whoa. <laughs> right? For the master to look at the servant and say, your life costs me my life. The servant was saying, I was callous with it. I just took it for granted. You know, I just kind of did what I, I, I had to do me, man, while you were gone. I had to do me. So I just lived for what I wanted to live for. You were never really on my mind. I just kind of went for it. You know what I'm saying? Your life costs me, my, your life is mine. I entrusted you to put it to work. I was reading one scholar and what he said, and I think I like this one, he said what the servant was actually saying was I resent the fact that you left me with the money. I didn't ask for your mina. Now I have to deal with this much money? I'm a servant. What do I know about dealing with this much money? This is going to derail what I want to do. I didn't ask for my life. 
I didn't ask for my burdens. I didn't ask for my hardship. I didn't ask for my blessings. I didn't ask for my abundance. I didn't ask you to be involved with my life. You just involved yourself in my life. And now you're holding me accountable for investing a life that I never really asked you to give me? And the master looks at the servant and his response to that servant is he says, what, why would you have done this? I gave you this opportunity, you squandered it, why? And here's what's fascinating. The servant, ready, blames the master. The servant says this, I was afraid of you. Because you're a hard man, you take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. See, it was your fault. It's your fault. I didn't want it. I didn't ask for it. You just dumped this mina on me. Now you're holding me accountable for it. So it's your fault. I was just afraid of you. And the master replies, he's actually sarcastic. He says, so I'm a hard man. If I'm such a hard man, why didn't you put it in the bank and get 2%? I'm not a hard man. You, and he calls him this, are a wicked servant. That's the problem. Jesus, who goes and derives his authority from the Father, he's not an elected God. It's not our choice of whether Jesus is God or not, he is. And for those of us who are his servants, he looks and he says, I've done something for you. I have purchased life for you. I have entrusted life for you. And I want you to know something. There is a time that you will be held accountable for the life that you lived. Not whether you're going to heaven or not, because the great white throne is the sheep and the goats in and out. You're in. But for the life that I gave you, you will be held accountable for it. Every Christ follower will stand before God, and we will give an accounting for how we live the life God gave us. The Apostle Paul talks about this and he uses a metaphor. He says, we're gonna present a home, a house. And that house is gonna be made of wood, hay, straw, and precious stones and, and, and precious metals, gold and silver. And the house of our life is going to be built and the house of our life is going to be brought to be judged. So there's a second judgment in the Bible called the Bema Seat Judgment. So if you wonder what a Bema is, if you think of the Olympics, when the, the platform that you get the gold, the silver, the bronze medal on, the Greek word for that is the word Bema. So this judgment is not a judgment of whether I'm in or out. This is a judgment of what did I do with my life? What was the quality of the workmanship of the house that is my life that I built? What did I do with my mina? And the Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians, and he says, their work, there is servants, not enemies, servants. Their work <coughs> will show for what it is. <coughs> because the day <coughs> will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, 
the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Paul says, right, when I come before God at the Bema Seat Judgment, and I give an account to my master who's been gone for a while, but is my king, and he says, what did you do? How did you put your life to work? The things of earthly value, wood, hay, straw. The things of eternal value, precious stones, gold, silver. All go through the fire. The wood, hay, straw burned up, goes away. What remains, the things that are eternal remain. For the one that built well, there is great reward. Here's your 10 cities, here's your five cities. For the one who built poorly, I mean, you're getting in, but only as one escaping the flight by the skin of your teeth. And the fear at the Bema Seat judgment is not a fear of losing my place in heaven. The fear, the caution to the servant is one of regret. That's what I did with my life. What'd you do with your life? Oh, man. Man, you should see my car. What'd you do with your life? You should should see my sales awards. I mean, my wall is... What'd you do with your life? In high school, I I started. It's that kind of stuff. And God would look and say, I don't... um, That's what you did with your life? You were callous, you were careless, you... What did you do with your life? I told other people about you. What did you do with your life? I served and I loved and I, I did it imperfectly, but it's what I did. What did you do with your life? I, I, I came to know you, Jesus. Like I walked with you. I lived my life with you. What did you do with your life? I, I invested what you gave me into the kingdom of God. See? And in the parable, that's an illustration, Jesus looks at his servants and he says, hey, I'm away, but I'm coming back and I'm your king. And I purchased something for you and I gave it to you so that you could earn reward for yourself. Lay up treasures in heaven. What'd you do with that? What'd you do with that? Because I am a holy and a just God. And you're going to answer that question. Then in the parable, Jesus turns the focus to the enemies. Right? Those who re- do not want him to be king, refuse to acknowledge his kingship. And he says this, but those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. My servants is about faithfulness. My enemies is about submission. And I am your king. 
and I will return, and I will sit on my throne, and my enemies will answer to my justice and my holiness, and my servants will answer to my justice and my holiness. And regardless of your thought process on it, that is the reality of who I am. intense stuff, right? Like, good night, Jeff. It's child dedication weekend. What do you do? I, you know, I mean, that is intense stuff. But this is a big part of who God is, right? Now, why would he tell us this? Because he's not launching. He's not screaming. He's not pounding the pulpit, right? That's not what he's doing. Why would he go out of his way to take a concept that is difficult to get our head around and create an illustrated story so that we can understand it. So, so Jesus does this because, because he wants us to get our head around something, right? He, he's looking at us and, and to the people listening here in the scripture and he's saying, this is a big deal. It's important enough that I want you guys to have your head around it and understand it. Because this is my nature. The sun is the sun. And I am loving and gracious and merciful and patient and kind and gentle and holy and righteous and just. I am. And so when you interact with me, you interact with all of me. And I want you to know that and I want you to be prepared for that interaction. So there's two groups in this parable, the servants and the enemies. So that would mean today as we're hearing this, that there's two groups, there's two chairs that we would sit in. We would either sit in the chair of the servant or we would sit in the chair of the enemy. So let's talk about the enemy first. It's hard for most of us to think of ourselves as an enemy of God. So when we think about an enemy of God, we think about like some hardcore protesting whatever, shouting there is no God and shaking his fist to the heavens. And that person, I'm sure, is an enemy of God, but the Apostle Paul says something fascinating. In Colossians chapter one, he says this, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your mind because of your behavior. Isn't that fascinating? He's like, you don't have to be walking the street saying there is no God, you know, burn the Bible. He's not, he's not saying that. He's like, you need to know something. You were enemies of God in your mind and it was evidenced by your behavior. What behavior? Was it smoking, drinking, chewing, day girls will do chair for Michigan kind of behavior? What was the behavior? The behavior was the behavior of independent rebellion. I will not acknowledge you as king. I don't have to lead an armed rebellion to ignore my king. I can do that subtly. I can do that privately. I can do that in segments of my life that I see but other people don't. And I do that in my heart. So Paul says, my enemies, God's enemies, are enemies from their heart. They, they, may, be not, they may not make a scene at church, 
but internally they're looking at their king and saying, I don't want you to be my king. I don't care that you're my king. I'm going to do what I got to do. You know, if I got to show up and act like you're my king, that's fine, but I'm not going to love you like my king. I'm not going to be loyal to you like my king. I'm not going to follow you like my king. I don't really want to understand you like my king. I'll just make up my own version of a king and pretend you're it. And Jesus would press into that and he would, through this parable, why would he tell it? Because he would look at those who are enemies of God in our hearts and he'd say, listen, I love you. I love you so much that I gave my life for you. In fact, Paul goes on, this is what he says. He says, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free of accusation. Jesus would look at an enemy and he would say, I love my enemies, I don't resent my enemies. I love you, I gave my life for you, I suffered for you, I died for you, I purchased life for you, and I love you so much that I am trying to let you know that you are going to face justice and holiness and righteousness, and you're not prepared for it. I'm warning you that this is also a part of who I am. The sun is the sun. See? I'm about as pale as you can get without a medical condition. And when I interact with the sun, I have to prepare to interact with it. Heidi wants to go to the beach. Heidi's like tan all the time, right? She goes to the beach. She puts on baby oil to get tanner, right? I find shade. I get PSF like 50,000, right? I hide because I know that the sun is the sun. I don't shake my fist at the sun, it doesn't matter what I think about the sun. And I, it doesn't matter if I think the sun is unfair. You treat Heidi this way, but you treat me this way. It has no bearing on the sun. I have to be prepared to interact with the sun for what the sun is. Jesus loves you so much that he makes up a story so you know that. He's not looking at you and saying, you're going to fry one day, you're going to fry. That's not what he's doing. He's saying, I am this. You have to understand, I'm your king. You will interact with me. It's not that you might, you're going to. And I did make a way of escape. I want nobody to perish. But I cannot not be me. I am what I am. And while I'm away, my mercy and my grace and my salvation are free and accessible. They're a gift that just needs to be received. And after your life ends or when I return, that offer is not extended anymore and you will deal with me. See? I am who I am and you need to be prepared to interact with me I gave my life. 
And if you're my enemy in your mind, see, then you will not be prepared to interact with my justice. But if you'll accept my forgiveness and accept my righteousness, my rightness, if you'll accept my mercy, if you'll, if you'll rec receive all of that, I will settle these legal debts for you so that when you stand before me, you will go with the sheep, with the servants, which is where I want you to be. Some of us are in that chair, and we need to be prepared for what that chair means. That's why Jesus tells us a story. Now, some of us are in the other chair. We're in the chair of the servant, and so Jesus is again loving us, saying, hey, listen, I want you to know that life you're living, we're gonna talk about that. And you're gonna present that life to me. And the fear at that judgment is not a fear of heaven, hell, because you're going to heaven, even though maybe just says escaping from the flames. The fear at that judgment is gonna be regret. That you built your life's house out of earthly things, missing the opportunities to turn them into eternal things. For the Christ follower, the great fear of a Christ follower is not death. Christ followers should not fear death. Right? I don't fear death. I'm not sure I'm excited about the process of dying. I don't fear death. I have no wonder about what's gonna happen to me after I die. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. We don't fear death. The quote-unquote fear of the Christ follower is that I would finish life with gas in the tank. I could have, I should have, I didn't. Hello, holy, just, righteous God. Here's my life. I lived it. The Christ followers should always look and say, what, how, do I, how do I compound the investment? The life that was purchased for me, given to me, that I get the rewards for. But don't finish with gas in the tank. Some of you are about ready to graduate from high school. Don't graduate high school with gas in the tank. 98% of the people you go to school with every day, you're never gonna see again after you get your diploma. That kid that needs to know Christ, that person that needs to experience love, that, that girl that's always alone, that wonders about her value on the planet, don't finish high school with gas in the tank. Don't finish college with gas in the tank. Your fraternity brother, you know he one drinks too much, he's just crazy. But you worry about him? Because he's gonna go out into life acting as a child, and you know that alcohol is already running away with him? Don't finish that relationship with gas in the tank. Your sorority sister, you know the one, and she just never knows what's going on. You worry about her? 
Make sure she knows about her worth and her value and her beauty that comes from God, not from whatever man she's with. Don't finish with gas in the tank. Don't finish parenting with gas in the tank. Parenting is done, ready, when your children go to be with the Lord. Because you parent through your whole life and then you parent from the grave. And when you stand before God, he says, what'd you do with your parenting? Oh man, did you see my kid's curve? He played soccer all the way through his sophomore year of high school. The, my kids, A pluses, A pluses God scholarship. That's what Jesus is like. We're we're gonna answer. That's that was your parenting. I entrusted the soul of a child to you and. Don't finish church with gas in your tank. Ness is empty. I'm out. I don't know what that means. Kids do it though. I'm out. Right? I gotta look that up. My kids are done, so I'm out. My career's done, so I'm out. 65, I'm retiring. I've said it before, you retire to go sit on a beach the rest of your life? If I was God, I couldn't think of a reason to keep you on the planet. When you, when you are at the peak of wisdom and influence, and there's generations beneath you that have no idea how to be married, no idea how to raise children, no idea how to find God. We're a church family. Your kids being out of your house, what about the rest of the kids that are under your eldership, your lead? You see what I'm saying? Believers don't finish with gas in the tank. Don't waste a day. I spent yesterday with a young woman who would do anything to have one more day with her husband And we're going to burn that on Netflix? This is what Jesus is saying. He's not wagging a finger, but he's looking and saying, hey, guys, I want you to know. I love you, and we're going to talk about this. And you're going to want to get the 10-time return. That's what you're going to want. And it's going to pay. It's going to pay. And I am your king. And I am just. And I define how this works. And I want you to know. I want you to know. So that you can be ready, eager, to stand before me at that beam of seat. All right, pray with me. Band's coming out. Jesus, love you. Help us with this. God, focus our minds and our hearts. God, for those of us who are your enemies, 
It's your kindness and your grace that calls us to repentance. Help us to hear it and receive it. And those of us who are your servants, God, let us look at every aspect of our life to find the things of eternal value, heavenly value, and to give all of ourselves to that. Lord, as you gave all of yourself to us, you took your power, your prestige, your wealth, everything, and you laid it down for us. And we want to love you like you loved us. We want to lay those same things at your feet and invest our life In these still moments, would you press into these deep recesses of our hearts? Let's acknowledge you, worship you for who you are. And then be challenged and changed and comforted by that, by that exact same person and the love that you have for us. Do that work even in these still moments, Jesus, in your name.